0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando.
1: One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word.
0: Thank you, Noah David. Again, I'm sorry for uh, the inconvenience of chapter two, twenty-three to twenty-eight, not being in your worship folder. If you don't have a scripture with you, it probably will not be on the screen behind me. But you'll just have to pay attention. And listen, uh, we are going through the book of Mark together. It's just our habit as a church to just kind of walk our way through books of the Bible together. Um, We did a book uh, called Colossians at the very beginning, which is about the church living out of the gospel. Um, Right now we're going through Mark, which is the story of the good news of Jesus and all the, the life that comes through him. And then our next step will be to go to the Old Testament and begin to understand how the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled in Christ And so as a church body, we just kind of keep rotating through those three. It'll take us a while to get through Mark. We've been here several months, and we're just now entering chapter three. Uh, But that is our habit. And um, most uh, commentators and, and, and theologians and those who study the Bible will tell you that the last... A story in chapter two and the first story in chapter three go together because there's just so many themes. There's, there's the Sabbath. Um, there's a needy person or persons who have their needs met by Jesus. So uh, there's an accusation by the Pharisees that Jesus and his disciples are not doing things right. There's just all of these themes that line up. Last week, being our first week here, and also communion and lots of other reasons, we just decided to unpack um, what is chapter two, 23 to 28. Today, I'll primarily teach from chapter three, one through six, but I will allude back to those themes. And, 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 and Mark put these two stories together because right now he is explaining to us from the beginning of chapter two through chapter three, verse six, he is giving us a picture of who Jesus's human opposition is. Chapter 1 is all about the proclamation and the announcement, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that he is here to establish his kingdom of life and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And his primary enemy, who is Satan, is announced and unveiled in chapter 1 as he tempts him in the wilderness. But now, chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 are about the human opposition to Jesus. And we've discovered some amazing things as we walk through these five stories in chapter 2 and now chapter 3. We've, we've encountered unbelievable ideas and something, some things like um, it's the religious professionals who are the opposition of Jesus and eventually the ones who will kill him. That there is in our world rule breakers and rule keepers and that both rule breakers and rule keepers are trying to find life in how they associate to rules, whether those are the rules of the Bible, the rules of Oprah, the rules of Wall Street Journal. Whatever the rules are, there are those of us who try and find life out of breaking rules and keeping rules. My Starbucks on Edgewater, right now, they have two tip jars. It's a fancy way to try and get more tips. And there's always a question. You put your money in to kind of vote for which one you think is better. And right now, it's keep New Year's resolutions or break New Year's resolutions. First couple days, lots of money in the keep jar. Recently, not so much, lots of money in the break jar. Two approaches on trying to find life, and the gospel says there's a third way, that Jesus keeps the rules and fulfills the law for us, and we find life only in him. And then we begin to go back to the law and live it out in in the way of love and life because he comes inside of us, and he teaches us by his spirit in the context of community through his word how to now live a loving life, not in order to save ourselves, not in order to find life, but because we've been given life in the gospel, So we've encountered these really radical ideas that rule keepers and rule breakers are both in violation of God's authority. The rule breaker just says, the heck with you, I don't care what you tell me to do. The rule keeper says, I'm going to keep your rules so you owe me. And we'll talk about anger later today as the primary emotion of those of us who are Pharisees because we're just really frustrated with God because we've been behaving so well and our lives are falling apart and we feel like he owes us. And what's astonishing is not that Jesus goes and he hangs out with rule breakers far more than rule keepers, although he hangs out with both. What's astonishing is that he says, I've come to call sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. I've come to call the rule breakers to find life in me. And of course, the irony is he's, he's hoping that those of us who find life in keeping the rules will understand that in keeping the rules we're actually breaking the heart of the authority of God and that we too are rule breakers and we're sinners and that Jesus is here to offer us salvation and forgiveness. And so that's what we've learned. This is our last week of five on this idea that we've been feels like we've been pounding home for about eight weeks. And so we'll take a little bit more time tonight and summarize, or this morning, I'm still on jet lag um, from a year of worshiping at night. So we'll unpack that uh, this morning um, and move on. So let's dig in um, to chapter three, verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue talking about Jesus, and there's the word again. It's tying us back into chapter two that Mark is setting up a theme here, that there's more going on than just this story. And a man was there with a withered hand. It's very odd. that The the grammar in the Greek language is very odd there. It's like shocking almost that the next thing you hear is that there's a man there with a withered hand. And they, it tells us in verse six, the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, so if you think back to last week, the, the, the Pharisees bring an accusation against Jesus' disciples. They're like, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're, they're walking through grain fields and they're taking grain and they're eating it. And in Luke chapter six, we find out that they're rubbing the grain together and therefore they're, they're reaping um, the grain. And Jesus says an incredibly profound thing because they, they're, they're arguing they're arguing that the disciples have broken the Sabbath, that have broken the law of God. And that's, of course, talking about the fourth commandment in the Old Testament to, keep this, to, to, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And the Sabbath is a really big dig, deal in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I mean, the whole thrust of Scripture is this idea that one in seven you'll stop your work, you'll rest physically, you'll rest spiritually in worship, being reminded of the gospel. And then that will throw you out into doing deeds of mercy. So ironically, you'll go work for other people to provide them with the rest you've been given uh, in Christ. And so not only were um, the Pharisees just content with what the Old Testament says, and the Old Testament says a lot about the Sabbath, but remember we talked about these 39 articles. We talked about their tradition where they're trying to establish Fences around the law so that they can make sure that they don't transgress that law because they believe if they keep that law and obey that law, and if they get all the nation of Israel to obey the law, then they will be given life by God. And so they set up these 39 articles of the oral tradition, stuff like stuff that makes sense, that would indeed usually look like work on the Sabbath, but some of it was just really ridiculous. Like you can't walk a certain distance because they would actually walk a certain distance and find out when they began to sweat. And that would be the distance that you could not walk on the Sabbath. You could not write more than one letter. I don't know why you can write one. But in these 39 rules that the Pharisees put on top of the Old Testament law, stuff like you can't untie a knot and you can't loosen a knot. And just over and over and over, these ideas of, and the motivation behind it is this central paradigm that the Pharisees lived out of, that you and I boot up on every morning, which is this idea that if I keep the rules, I will get life, that the law comes before life. And Jesus taught them last week. Do you remember this? He, he talked about a precedent from the Old Testament with David and Abiathar. And he said that precedent rightly understood the place of the law and where it lines up with life and the purpose of the law. remember he said David was really hungry and he was fleeing Saul who was trying to kill him. He said, he and his men walked into the house of God and they take the bread of the presence, the holy bread of God, the consecrated bread of God, which is not legal for them to do at all. It wasn't legal for Abiathar to give it to them. They did not have hot loaves, 12 loaves ready to set back up just like the Old Testament tells them they should. And Jesus does not argue with them. He does not say, you guys are too worried about your traditions and what you've put on top of the Bible. He says, David broke the laws of the Bible and it was the right thing to do. So he doesn't say, remove your traditions, and let's get back to what the Bible says. He says, no, David broke the letter of the law because David understood where the law was placed underneath life. He says in verse 26, the Sabbath was made or created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And his point was this. Men and women were built on the sixth day, and God gave them the gift of the Sabbath, on the seventh day. And he's saying to them, you've got to understand that both in time and in superiority and in authority, life comes before law. And then if you think through the Old Testament, this is the biblical pattern over and over and over that God gives life. He blesses his people with his presence. And then out of that life and blessing, he gives them laws. And the laws are there just to support and to give life. They're there to sustain life. And so Jesus is teaching in verse 26, if the keeping of the letter of the law harms what goes before the law, which is life and presence, then you should abandon the law. And so in our text, where we pick up today, in chapter three, verse four, he's saying, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He already taught them in a previous conversation that the lawful thing to do is is to give life and to do good. And what they're going to accuse him of, which is healing, curing, restoration. He's like, that's the whole point of the Sabbath and the law, that it would sustain life. And I'll give you an illustration that that most of us um, would be somewhat familiar with. Um, My friend, uh, Tim Mitchell, uh, is a man that runs a ministry called Parker Street Ministry um, in Lakeland. And I apologize, I have three very important people in my life um, from Lakeland named Tim. I've got several important Tims here as well. Uh, Tim Rice is the, the guy with the short haircut, the stocky, strong-looking guy that's come to preach a few times. He's the pastor of Trinity. He was sort of my intellectual mentor for years, still is. Tim O was the big guy that's sort of my spiritual mentor, uh, my disciplinarian, just joking. Um, so he's the big fella, and he's in charge of uh, spiritual dynamics at that church. He's in charge of spiritual growth and discipleship. And then there's this little wiry guy that looks like Legless that most of you have not met, although some of you have. He looks like Legless in The Lord of the Rings. He's got long blonde hair, um, and he's from uh, Arkansas. And at the age of 19, he moved into Parker Street Ministries, the Parker Street neighborhood, which is the roughest neighborhood in Polk County. And I think at times, being the meth capital of the world, you could argue that it's the roughest in Florida for sure. And at 19, this white kid from Arkansas moves into the projects. And now he's in his low 30s. He's been there serving and tutoring kids and protecting women and promoting men and discipling men for 11 years. And uh, he was here just a couple weeks ago trying to figure out um, some stuff that some of the folks in our congregation had done. And um, he was telling me this story that um, that in the Parker Street neighborhood, and I I spent a lot of time there, um, and I know that this is true, that when there's gunfire, when there's gunfire, you can count on one thing. It'll be at least 30 minutes to an hour before the police show up. Just count on it. And I'm not blaming them for that. I'm just telling you the facts that they don't show up even though the police department is right there in downtown Lakeland 2 blocks away. And so Tim has this ordinary habit of going towards danger. He just believes that's why he's there. And he'll go through he'll, he'll run through causeways of apartments. I mean, he will jump fences. He will head towards havoc and try and just be a presence of peace and healing. And he'll just try and get in the mix. And he, he's, a, he's an amazing, astounding man. And um, this day's no different. Um, he was actually driving down the road in the ministry van And he hears the gunfire, and he goes to where he knows it's going to be because there's currently turf war going on there. Um, The city has displaced some of the residents of Parker Street through eminent domain, and so there's turf wars between about a mile away. And so he's running, he's driving there, and in the middle of the road is a man just bloody and shot. And so he picks the man up, never met him before in his life, throws him in the van, and uh, he turns the van around and begins to race towards Florida Avenue so that he can go north on Florida Avenue towards the hospital, Lakeland Regional. And on his way out of the neighborhood, sitting there eating a donut, is a policeman. It's actually a friend of ours. And he's under orders. He's not going in until they tell him to go in. And Tim's like, I've got got him in the back of my van. I'm going to the hospital. And he's like, sure. Begins to turn his car around. But about three blocks farther down the road, there's a police barricade. And here comes a big van just screaming down the road, honking its horn, driving wildly, trying to get someone from death to life. And the police stop him and they have him at gunpoint. And the man in the back is Hispanic, doesn't speak a word of English and he's hunched over like this. And they're telling him, get your hands up, get your hands up. There's like six policemen hovering around the van. Finally, the the first policeman comes and shows up. He says, guys, it's okay. I know this guy, he's gotta go to the hospital. And so that cop leads them up Florida Avenue, a 35 mile an hour zone at like 85 or 90 with the sirens on because the point is this. You break the letter of the law in order to keep the intent of the law. The intent of the law is to support and sustain life. That's the trajectory of the law. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's not, last week he said, they indeed did what what was not lawful. And this week he's teaching them what lawful means. Lawful means good, life, and healing. And then Jesus says to them, he gives them this question based on something he's already taught them, expecting an answer, but they're not there to learn. They're there to trap him because they'd like to accuse him, and they want to destroy him, verse six. And we pick up in verse four, the very end. He asks them this brilliant question, puts them on the horns of a dilemma, and they are silent. And then I think we're going to read right now one of the most beautiful lines about Jesus in all of the Bible. It's incredibly profound. Verse five, and he looked Around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. What's incredibly profound about Jesus, and now we're beginning to unpack. We're trying to discern where we're living our lives as if obeying the rules will give me life, where law becomes before life. We're trying to discern where that is. And so we're going to unpack what our emotions are like when we're living out of the gospel, when we're living out of the idea that I get life from Jesus, and then I go out and obey. And we're going to discern what it feels like emotionally to try and earn our salvation. Let's first look at Jesus the beautiful one. It doesn't say it in our passage, but for those of us that have been studying the person of Jesus material, we know that over and over and over, 40 times in the New Testament, it said of Jesus that he looks at someone in pain. He feels compassion. So his heart goes out to them. His hands and his body follows. He has to go where his heart is being pulled. He goes there and he meets needs. He sees, he feels, he helps. 40 times that happened with the man, with the, 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 the leper in chapter one. It says Jesus is literally moved with pity. His heart moves out and his hands and his body follow in order to go and give redemption. So we know that Jesus, when he's saying, stand here or come here in verse three, he's trying to bring about in the Pharisees compassion. There's a man in front of them whose hand does not work in a world where if your hand does not work, you don't have life. He's trying to bring compassion about in them. And then he looked around at them with anger And then it says he was grieved at their hardness of heart. I said in our, our worship folder, mixed emotions versus missing emotions, talking about Jesus versus the Pharisees. And I'm not sure if mixed is the right word, but what I'm trying to get us to see is the complex emotional fabric of Jesus's life that in this situation, he can feel compassion for a man that's hurting. He can feel anger towards evil and injustice. And he can at the same time have grief and sorrow over the heart that can't feel pain. That's profound. I'll give you an example from my life. I've been, um, I I hate to do this. I almost always give examples of where I need to repent. Um, But recently, God did this in my life. If, If you know me, for four or five years, I've been begging Jesus to make me a less angry man. And I've been begging him to give me the ability to feel the emotions I need to feel wherever I'm at, whatever's going on, believing that that's the word of the Holy Spirit. And so if you know anything about me, I usually get really angry when things are not going my way. That never happens with Jesus. He only gets angry when injustice is being being done to the weak. And so I've been asking him, make me less angry about selfish things, but make me more angry about injustice and evil because I believe inside of me there's anger that needs to come out over brokenness. And so I believe in a proactive sanctification. I believe in proactive growth. You get busy doing what you're supposed to do and the things you're not supposed to do will wane away. And so recently, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, some of you know this, most of you don't, I'm driving down Florida Avenue, and I'm about to hit Amelia at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's a one-way street going south, a very busy time of day, and there's a man in the middle of the road, a homeless man who I know, who's waving a stick, and he's causing commotion, which is normal for him, and um, out of the corner of his eye, he sees a woman who's walking south on orange right there at the AT&T building, and he runs over to her, and she begins to scream, I'll call 911, I'll call 911, and he hit her with a stick, and she dropped instantly to the ground. And um, my heart was so pissed off, I threw the car in park, nearly ripped the transmission out, and I ran over to him, and in in very R-rated language, I accosted him. And for seven minutes, my heart broke for his condition. As I realized from doing inner city work for a long time that if you'll just engage someone in conversation who's in this man's state, he'll sit and talk to you forever. So there's a woman helping the woman that's been hit and has called 911 and I'm just there talking to him and my heart is breaking. Of course, I'm angry for him hitting her. Of course, I'm glad he's in jail today. Of course, I'm glad justice was served. But he clearly had mental confusion. He clearly had emotional confusion and brokenness. He clearly had anger and woundedness and pain in himself that he was spitting out literally at me for seven minutes. And when I was done in journaling, I realized that for the first time in my life, anger sent me into a situation of injustice and compassion kept me there. That's profound for me if you know me. I don't usually do that well with those sorts of situations. I usually run from scary situations. My friend Tim would always head out towards the fight at Parker Street. I'd head to the back of the shepherd house and make sure the kids were okay because I'm so scared. Of course, I'll be angry if you drop a Coke, but I won't be angry at injustice. Do you see the beauty of Jesus's life. Listen, when we say he's our righteousness, when we say he is our beauty, when we say he is our glory, when we say he lived life for us, he did everything right and beautiful and glorious and good. And right now, if you don't understand a thing about the gospel, you've got to understand this, that Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, he has given us that beauty and that glory and that picture and that image and that reputation. And the heavenly father is wild about us because of Jesus, That's amazing. And so if you look at our Pharisees, it's incredible. It's incredible. Do you see how Jesus says, what is he crying over? It says he's grieved. There's no other place in the New Testament this word is written, this grieved in verse five. All the other extra biblical uses of this Greek word include sobbing, crying, wailing, and Jesus is grieved. Now what's he grieved at? He's grieved at their hardness of heart, literally a word that means calloused and cannot feel. What I'm trying to get us to see is to maybe take a look at our emotional life a little bit and begin to understand that it's only when we live out of the gospel that we'll live beautiful lives like Jesus. And it's an indicator to us that when we don't feel emotion, when we should, and when our primary emotion is anger, Luke chapter six, exact same story, it says they were filled with rage. Jesus does good on the Sabbath and they're angry that these are indicators to us. See, listen, most of us, even if you're brand new and only been coming for a couple months, you're going, if I were to say to you, multiple choice, true, false, whatever, multiple choice, do you obey and then get the blessing of God in the gospel or do you get the blessing of God and then obey? I mean, even if you've been here a couple weeks, you're gonna say, ooh, life comes before law, not law before life, and yet, if we will look at our lives, we will realize that every morning we wake up, we boot up on a system called legalism, orphan-like thinking. We boot up on this system that says, I've got to achieve and perform today or I'm not okay. Um, my uh, spiritual grandfather, Paul Miller, says, he calls it the Sarks, which is the Greek word for flesh, calls it the Sarks operating system, that every morning, if you do not go in and reboot your system according to the gospel, you will live out of the flesh and out of performance-based religion, and out of achievement, and out of orphan-like status all day long. Tim Keller is another uh, pastor that a lot of you listen to. He has this analogy where he says, it's not like a table where you sit in the middle and you hope to move towards what is a gospel orientation of life, but the table is slanted away from the gospel, and you've got to crawl you've got to cling on and you have to beg and you have to work your tail off to move up towards what is true of us, which is that we don't have to perform today to be loved by God. He's already wild about us. (laughs) And so this is another indicator, these emotions. Listen, let's review last week. Let's see it again this week. And I'm giving you these indicators not to make us feel bad, not to damn us, not to make us guilty. I'm giving us these indicators so that we can reflect upon the Pharisees' lives and begin to understand, not that we would say, I believe you have to obey in order to get life, but to see how we're living as if we have to obey in order to get life. Do you remember this from last week? They're always on the prowl. Verse 24, they're like, look, look, there he is. There they are. Why are they doing what's not lawful? This week, they've set a trap for Jesus to try and catch him doing something wrong. Always on the prowl. Persistent and rude. Remember last week, they kept saying over and over and over, why are they doing that? 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 Why, are they doing that? why would they keep doing that? Remember, they're always prosecuting. Listen, this is how we know that we're Pharisees. This is how we know we're the enemy of the gospel, is that when we're always prosecuting ourselves and other people. You see that this week? They want to, what's the word Mark uses? They want to accuse him. We love accusation when we're living the lie that obeying will give us life. They're always anxious about the details. This week, they're anxious that Jesus is gonna cure. There are 39 articles teach that you can heal somebody on the Sabbath if it's a life-threatening situation. But literally, they write in their traditions, you may not reset a broken bone on the Sabbath because that is not life-threatening. And you certainly can't work towards the cure of a withered hand. Um, You remember that old statement from, I think it was a Saturday sports show. Um, And I think the the gentleman that said it uh, recently passed away. I thought of it this morning, where he said the the tagline is the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Do you remember that? Talking about sports? That's what it feels like to be a Pharisee if you ever played sports, you have butterflies all day long until the big game. And then after the game, if you won, you have this momentary elation. But if you lost, you have this deep depression. That's what life feels like when you're not resting in the gospel. Butterflies all the time. Am I getting it right? Am I achieving? Have I figured this out? And then when we live up to whatever our rules are, we feel good. And when we don't, we feel horrible. I already said this, the anger, if you read through, and and please do city Bible reading, for no other reason to check me when I say stuff like this to you, but when you read through the Gospels, the Pharisees are always angry, always irritated, always annoyed, always impatient. Just things for us to think about. Do you see the amazing hypocrisy? This is a new one for this week. They're not at the synagogue worshiping, which is what you're supposed to do to keep the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, but they're there to spy on and trap Jesus. That they will deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they conspire to do evil. And then this verse six, this is wild. I mean, why would Mark write this? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. You ever seen the movie Sleeping with the Enemy? That's it right there until Jesus comes on the scene the Pharisees arch enemy is the Herodians because the Herodians are for Herod Herod is the governor put in place by Rome and Herod is trying to spread Roman and Greek culture into Israel and they're fighting against them but their hatred for Jesus is so intense that they will go partner with their arch enemy in order to defeat him do you see do you feel the hypocrisy in that now listen what do we do what do we do right now what if you what if i've caught you Now, what if you go and you actually begin to reflect on this in community? What if you begin this week to realize, oh my goodness, there's an indicator of pharisaical legalistic living where I'm trying to gain God's love instead of living out of it. What do you do? Don't lie. Don't despair. Do not determine and promise to do better. Point three, the hand and the heart. This is the beautiful irony of this text that we have got to see, that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees that Mark is recording, your hearts are symbolized in the man's hand. It's shriveled and dried up and can't move and it can't feel anything. And you can't do a thing about it except do whatever Jesus tells for the man with the withered hand to do. Let's look at what Jesus says to do because this is what we do with our dried up hearts And he said to the man, verse three, who possessed a withered hand. It literally says he possessed a withered hand. So this is what he says to you and I who possess a stingy heart. Come here. Come here to me. It literally says, stand up in the middle. He's saying, get up and come see me. Can you imagine the fear and anxiety in this pawn of the Pharisee's heart. And then he says, verse five, he says to the man, stretch out or extend or lay out your hand. Can you imagine the horror and the shame? I mean, anyone I know with a physical disability does not want attention to be brought to what has shamed them for their entire lives. He's saying, lay out what's broken in you and let me deal with it and let me heal it and let me restore it and let me make it new. In the gospel, we are scared to death to pull out our hearts and to lay them out in front of Jesus and talk about what's truly going on in them. That we're racist, that we're angry, that we're proud, that we're self righteous, that we're scared to death we don't know what to do with life. We're just scared to death to pull that out. And the the incredible fear of man to pull out what is broken in us because the world damns us when we're broken. And so we're scared to death to pull it out. And Jesus says, pull it out and lay it in front of me. In the act of pulling it out and exposing it, I will redeem it and I will change it and I will make it new and I will give you life. But In the gospel, our vulnerability, where we open up and expose what's truly going on inside of us, that vulnerability is met with the blessing of God. God graces us when we open up and let him see what's going on inside of us. It happens over and over and over that our vulnerability is met with blessing. That doesn't happen in any other world religion or any other thinking system of the world. Weakness and brokenness is spit at. In the gospel, weakness and brokenness is blessed and it's healed, and it's given new life. I was, um, one of my jobs as a college minister and as a young adult pastor for years has been to do a lot of premarital counseling. And um, a particular bride-to-be came to me um, a couple of uh, nights before the wedding, and, um, and she said, basically to me, I'm scared to death over the honeymoon night. And I realize for a lot of us, it's not true, the anxiety of the honeymoon night because um, we were living recklessly for a long time, which of course God can save and forgive. But for this young woman and this young man, it was going to be a very anxiety-producing night where she was going to be exposed and made vulnerable. And she said, I'm scared to death. And this is the reason I'm scared to death is because I'm not beautiful. And I've got more weight than I wanna have. And I've got birthmarks where I don't want them. I'm just really scared to death to be laid out and exposed on the honeymoon night. And culturally, what our culture says is beautiful. Now listen, the Bible says God doesn't give a crud about what's on the outside. He loves what's on the inside. If you read through the Bible, it talks about we get to grow in our affection and our love for our spouses, even as they become the opposite of what the culture says is good, what the culture values. And so I said to her, I have no idea what's gonna happen on your honeymoon night. But let's pray together. I want you to go there in a sense of freedom and joy and trust that your fiance really wants to be married to you and he really wants to be with you. And when you get back, let's just, let's have a counseling session. Let's just dialogue about, dialogue about what happened. I said, but no matter what happens, Jesus is wild about you. You can rest in, in the father loving you. You can know that even if, if you get turned away and shamed on your honeymoon night, that God's wild about you. She came back and she reported in, they reported as a couple when you do premarital counseling, I mean, just you know, I reserve the right to break off any marriage I want if I think it's bad. And we always do counseling after we get married because that's when we need it the most. And um, that's when the real self comes out and the fake self goes on the shelf. And um, so they reported in, and, and I, I kind of insinuated, how, "How did it go? How was it? Are you okay?" And she said, "My life has changed." He didn't want the lights off. He didn't want the covers on. He voraciously attacked me, wanting me desperately <laughs> because I was what he wanted and that changed my life. That's the gospel. The gospel is we're exposed in front of Jesus. First John 1 says, come and live in the light. It doesn't say come and live in the light. Don't, it doesn't say clean up your past and do everything right and come live in the light and do a good thing. It says come live in the light and don't lie about your sin because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. It says, just come live out in the open and live in the fellowship of believers. So this is what we do with our brokenness. We put it in our hands and we go to Jesus. And over time, we learn that he's gonna kiss us with the gracious lips of the gospel. And he's gonna kiss us because he cursed his son. That the one who was vulnerable, naked and ashamed on the cross did not get the blessing and the kiss of God. He got the curse of the father after living this beautiful of a life. And so you and I, we stand in front of the Father and we have the approval and the love and the definement of Jesus because he took our curse. That will change our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we indeed love you. We're indeed amazed by you. Thank you for this taste of heaven where we can begin to feel your love and your grace and your approval and the power that you give us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this worship time. We do pray that you would continue to be adored and lifted up and made famous in our hearts and in our relationships and in this city. In your name we pray, amen.